Today's reading from the Word of God comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Please follow along in your own Bibles on the screen behind me, or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, children are invited to join kids' crew through the door on your right. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city, there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, grant me justice against my accuser. For a while, he refused. But later he said to himself, though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because of this widow um, keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, he will find faith. Will he find faith on earth? This is the word of the Lord. You know, it is a custom here to take just a moment to quiet ourselves before we hear a sermon. Just to kind of get ourselves ready to see if God has something for us. Could we do that? And amen. And here we go. I'm going to need your help this morning, by the way. Uh, I want us to say a word in unison. Just one word. It's the word should. Okay? I'm going to count to three and we'll all say it together with enthusiasm. Ready? One, two, three. Should. Oh, you're very good. Okay. Hold that thought. We'll need that later. As Ellie said, my name's Mike Edsel. My wife Stephanie and I are fairly new partners uh, here at Anchor Bay. We work with the Navigators, uh, which has discipleship ministries in over 100 countries around the world. Uh, Stephanie also wears a second hat. She's the Navigator Liaison with Life Springs International, which uh, trains women leaders in multiple countries as well. Now, as big as that sounds, Steph and I have spent most of our career among handfuls of university students on the West Coast, where we're from. Um, we, during that time, God also gave us a world vision, and we started sending students. And then we started taking students. And then finally, we had taken some students to Slovakia, and the Slovaks said, we could use somebody like you. Why don't you stay? So we did. Uh, When we returned in 2018, Steph and our daughter Hannah found us a fixer-upper here in Beverly. Um, We signed the papers on a Friday. We moved in on Saturday, and we got back on a plane for Europe on Sunday. We are, our job currently is we are what they call mobile alongsiders, which mean we travel some, we Zoom call a lot, shepherding people in the field. Um, When COVID happens, like all of us, we were going to church online. And one Sunday morning, Stephanie was surfing around the internet and found Pastor Bryn preaching. And at the end of that service, she says, you know, when it opens up, I think we should visit there. We did. And we wanted to come back. Um, We got involved. We joined a life group. Eventually became partners. 
And in the last year and a half or so, I don't think we've ever gone home when we weren't encouraged and taught and challenged by the pulpit, by our life group friends, by the teams we're part of, by you guys. You know, you are good for us. Now, I hope you like stories. I'm a grandfather. I tell stories. In 1948, there was a widow named Ethel B. McCamey. Remember that first name, Ethel. In a small town in Northern California. And her youngest child was a football star at the local high school. And that year, they had a new young coach. Now, this widow might not have, have been noticed by most people, but Jesus knew who she was because they talked regularly. Uh, as Ethel got to know this young coach and his wife and two little girls, she began to pray for them every night. And four years later, when I was born, she added my name to the list. We called her Mrs. Mack. And she was our babysitter and a family friend and eventually a third grandma. When our other grandmas got Valentine's cards, so did Mrs. Mack. If my other grandma got a Christmas gift, so did Mrs. Mack. She watched us grow up and she kept praying. Since both my parents were school teachers, we would spend all summer on my grandparents' ranch working, mostly having a lot of fun. 200 miles to the north. But I still have my saddle and spurs, by the way, <laughs> uh, to prove it. But the summer after high school, I needed money for college, so I got a job and stayed home in town. And, and let me flesh that out a little bit for you. I'm 17 years old. I have money in my pocket for the first time in my life. How shall I say this? I am not yet wise, <laughs> with friends to match. And my parents are 200 miles away. You can do the math. <laughs> By that time, Mrs. Mack had moved down the street two houses. And every night when she knelt on a, a little rug by her bed, she could look out that window and she'd see the cars parked in front of our house and she'd see all the lights on and if it was a warm night and her window was open, she'd hear the rock and roll music blaring, people going in and out. She would have noticed a couple times the cops dropped by to say hello. <laughs> and she kept praying. So... By the time I arrived at college, I thought of myself as an atheist. And I meet the navigators, and they invite me to a Bible study. But it wasn't terribly effective. Until Christmas break, I, I was back up on the ranch. It had rained one night. And I woke up the next morning to the bluest blue sky I'd ever seen. I smelled fresh fir trees, just I was overwhelmed. There had to be a God. Nothing this beautiful could be random. The resurrection took a little more time. But I had, after talking to these navigator guys and arguing with these navigator guys and reading 
some stuff, I came to the conclusion that the most logical answer was that it happened. So, on April 13th, 1971, I became a Christian. Now, the outside was still pretty rough. But inside, I was transformed, and I had to tell people. So I go home. Next time I go home, um, oh, by the way, when you're talking to your father about the fires of hell, don't do that while he's barbecuing raw meat over coals. It leads to bad illustrations. But I, when I was talking to mom, and now my family's not very religious, mom didn't know what to do with what I was saying. So after a few minutes, she goes, you know who'd be interested in this? You should go down the street and talk to Mrs. Mack. So I did. And I go down and knock on the door, and I go, Mrs. Mack, mom says, you might be interested in the fact that I've become a Christian. Now, I don't know what I was expecting. It wasn't what I got. She began to weep. And she brought me in the house, sat me down, and she said that she had prayed for me since the day I was born. Well, she took me to church next Sunday, Little Baptist Church, introduced me to all her little buddies, got her arm around me. She wasn't very big. And she's going, this is one of mine. This is one of mine. And it occurred to me, I wasn't the only guy he, she was praying for. In fact, they all had people in that town, kids, that they were praying for. Now, Mrs. Mack moved back to Arkansas to be with her daughter. My parents moved out of town, and I never go back. So I don't know the, the full effect of their prayers. But it changed my life. Uh, interesting little side note. There was another prayer hero named Ethel. This one was Ethel Baker. And she was in the town where I was going to college. And the Navigator group had sort of adopted her. And Ethel Baker had a stack of missionary prayer letters and sheets of paper with names on it that she would pray through every single day. She'd start at four in the morning. You don't have to do that, by the way. <laughs> but she'd start at four. She said the Lord would wake her up. And she'd take a break for breakfast and finish before noon. And after that first Bible study, the Navs had given her my name. So... I have this fantasy. I, I get to heaven and I ask God, I go, well, God, why me? And he says, you know, I didn't really want you, but the Ethels wouldn't leave me alone. <laughs> well, this takes us to our text. And let me read it again just to remind me. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said... In a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time, he refused. But finally, he said to himself, 
Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she will eventually so that she won't eventually come and attack me. Or and in some translation says, or wear me out. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring justice for his chosen ones? who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, with most... um, Where is we? Okay, here we are. With most parables... Even the ones Jesus explains, there's still the question, what's the point? You know, how does this apply to me now, if at all? That's not our problem this morning. Luke makes it very clear. Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up, not quit. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Well, prayer is at least part of it. If you are new to following Jesus, this is a great place to start. If you are old to following Jesus, this is a great place to revisit. Before we move on, I want to talk about one word in the verse, uh, the word should. If you are a disciple, you should always pray. Agreed? Sure, nobody's going to argue with that. However, if English is our first language, our default is to think that people use words the way we do. It's automatic. Uh, If we aren't careful, we we can misunderstand or even skip over that word should. And I don't think we... That was weak, but okay. I don't think we... Oh, much. Oh, thank you. I just wanted to see if I could get you to do it. Um, (laughs) This is not should like, oh, yeah, man, that's cool. You you, you should do that. Totally. You know, this is not a suggestion. This, This is not merely a good idea. Should in this verse is a translation of a Greek word for necessity. Dei. It's, that's why some translations said you need it's not optional if we are disciples of Jesus we ought to we need to we should always pray because that's what disciples of Jesus do if we are serious about Jesus we should be serious about prayer so Luke gives us a heads up And the parable follows with the two key players. The unrighteous judge and the widow seeking justice. We aren't told exactly how the judge is unrighteous. But as a judge, he's supposed to render judgment without prejudice. Uh, Today, we might call him corrupt. Uh, Throughout the Old Testament, the nation, and specifically judges, are warned against making justice merely a matter of who can pay. Uh, Deuteronomy 16, 19, and I'll just read it from here. You must not distort justice. You must 
here we are. You must not show partiality and you must not accept bribes for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Justice and only justice you shall pursue. That's what a judge is supposed to be. Not our guy. Maybe it's not money. There could be other reasons. Maybe, maybe if you're a, a relative or a friend, things could go well for you in his court. And if you don't have that special relationship, you better hope the other guy doesn't. Um, this, this judge claims to, to fear neither God nor man. Does he think God can't see the backroom deals, the under-the-table payments, the wink and the nod to the friend in front of the, the court? Does he think God won't or can't do anything? Is anybody this untouchable? I was in the fifth grade when President Kennedy was murdered in Dallas, Texas. I was a kid, so there's so much I didn't understand about death or grief or a national tragedy. But my world changed that day. I remember clearly thinking, if they can get him, they can get anybody. They can kid me. All of a sudden, I was vulnerable in a dangerous world. Just a few decades before Jesus was teaching this parable, Caesar was murdered by the Roman Senate. If they could get the most powerful man in the Roman Empire, they can get a judge. Jesus is making a point here. The judge is a in the parable is an arrogant man, he's an unfair man, he's an unloving man. He is just the opposite of God. But we'll talk about that some more in a minute. The widow is in total contrast. In that time and culture, a woman had little power and few prospects that weren't tied to a husband or a son or a male relative. Um, widows are some of the more vulnerable members of society. And that's why James says that the gen, one of the a genuine expression of our faith is to visit orphans and widows in their distress, which is not an uncommon condition for orphans and widows. Now, we don't know what the conflict is between the widow and her opponent, but the implication is that the widow is in the right, and the judge doesn't care. In fact, he'd rather just keep on ignoring her. But this woman will not let it rest. She comes back again and again and again. And finally, in frustration and in fed-upness, the judge gives in and she wins her case. He doesn't do it because as a sudden fit of righteousness or repentance. He does it because she won't leave him alone. She is going to wear him out. She is persistent, she is insistent, she is demanding, and she will not be stopped. And here's the reason we can pray with confidence. If an unrighteous, unloving, unfair judge will respond to the widow, 
we can expect our righteous, loving, caring Father in heaven will respond to our prayers. When we call out to him day and night, won't he hear us? Of course he will. God seems to be inviting us to come to him again and again and again, persisting in prayer. He's telling us that he will respond when we bother him. He's asking us to. Finally, Jesus turns, I think, introspective. It says, and yet when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, I don't know what he's doing. I, I don't know. Is it a challenge to the hearer? Is he looking at his guys going, I don't know, can they do it? I don't know what, he does, what, what he's thinking. But I know what he wants. He wants us to be like this widow. He wants us to be like Mrs. Mack and Mrs. Baker. He wants us to be an Ethel. This all sounds great. But what happens when it doesn't work? What's going on when the answer seems to be no? Or worse, silence. I have seen dramatic, unquestionable answers to prayer. And I have seen people pray like Jesus in Gethsemane. And nothing. If Luke 18 is true, how come it doesn't always happen the way we ask? I've heard some answers to that question, but none of them really satisfy me. So if you need something concrete, if you need something that explains it all, if you need me to know and to tell you this morning, I can't. I do believe some things, whether I understand how they work or not. First, I believe it would be a terrible mistake to accuse ourselves or someone else of not being worthy of having our prayers answered or not trying hard enough, something like that. None of us are worthy, so that's off the table. Um, the only qualification for God's grace is need. And God's not in heaven counting our prayers. You know, it's like, five more and Mike wins the lottery. You know, I don't play. Um, my mother used to pray, play and I would pray for her. <laughs> you know, she didn't win either. Um, God is not blessing you today and ignoring you tomorrow because he feels like it or he's bored. God's love is constant and unflagging. He has already demonstrated his love on the cross. God has nothing to prove. So why, like the widow, do we have to wait? Why do we need to persist in prayer? I don't pretend to know why God does what he does or doesn't do what he doesn't do. But I know who he is and I know what he's like. And I trust him. Because he is trustworthy, I can wait. I can keep praying and trusting. Now, before I make myself sound really good, I am not anybody's super saint up here. I struggle as much as every one of you, probably more than most. 
I need help. That can be the kind and wise reminder from a friend. Or it can be patience and perspective from the scriptures. And one of my favorite passages is Psalm 73. Now, I wanted to read the whole thing, but that's a whole other sermon. The psalmist starts by recounting the life of the wicked, how they get away with everything. They're violent oppressors, arrogant towards God. And then he ends the portion with, this is what the wicked are like. Always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. That's the way of the world. Evil always wins. You know, the guy's like, he's saying, like, I follow God. I do the right things. And it's a waste of time. That's our, sometimes we can feel that way about prayer. Heaven's not taking our calls. God's not answering our texts. It's a waste of time. We can feel that way. The psalmist is feeling that way in his situation. And then there, I think there's a pause. He collects himself. He goes into the sanctuary, into the presence of God, and everything changes. We look at this world, we see that it's unfair. We pray for justice and right and deliverance of some kind. And then we remember that justice and reward may not be immediate, but they are certain in God's timing. The psalm ends with one of my favorite verses. But as for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all his deeds. What a great definition of the word good. The nearness of God. How's it going? Going good? God must be near. He is near. He is as close as prayer. You can be near to him now. Or later. Anytime, really. Now, it was, um, a few years ago, I was talking to a returned Baptist missionary from Brazil. And I asked him, well, so who's, who's being really successful? Who's having a great ministry in Brazil? What I was really doing was fishing for compliments because the Navigators had a ministry in Brazil that we were pretty proud of. And what I was going to do is have him talk about us and then I was going to let him know that I, too, was a navigator. And then he would think I was really cool. Uh, but he didn't even know we were there. That was, depressed, you know, sort of disappointing. And he didn't mention his own group. He mentioned this other group altogether. And I wanted to know why they were so successful. I want to have a successful ministry. And I asked, what, you know, what was the secret? And this guy kind of looks at the ceiling, thinks for a minute. He said, well, they start with prayer. They, they always start with prayer. And, and then they pray. And after that, they pray some more. When the Son of Man returns, I'll bet he's going to find some people praying in Brazil. I bet he's going to find some Ethels praying for the wayward boys and girls in whatever town they're in. The question for us this morning 
is who will he find praying in Beverly? Master, it is such a delight to be your child. You are so accessible to us without barriers. Draw us into your presence. Draw us into you. Father, do it every day. You invite us to bother you. Bother us. Draw us to yourself. That we might be people of prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.